This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde watches on as Prince Andrew takes yet another run at the greasy pole of justice. Tim Dowling mulls over the fragility of male friendships. And Amelia Tate methodically unpacks the world of the hyper-organised. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, it's been a heady fortnight for Prince Andrew, what with all the conclusive evidence proffered by his allies. But, points out Marina Hyde, if all the Duke has is a bizarre mocked-up photo of two people in a bathtub, then he's in far worse trouble than he realises. Read by Serena Mantegi. In recent times, Prince Andrew has been the subject of both a televised comedy musical and a number of formal council petitions from Brits who no longer wish their street to be called Prince Andrew Drive or Prince Andrew Way. Yet, amazingly, the Duke somehow still remains the most ridiculous thing about his own life. Barely a week goes by without some wince-inducing story about his comeback plans finding its well-sourced way into the news. After many years of non-cooperation with any number of attempts to get to the bottom of her allegations against him, Andrew last year finally settled a civil claim with Virginia Jeffrey, who was trafficked by the deceased paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein. The settlement did not include any admission of guilt. Jeffrey is now reported to be writing a book about her experiences with Epstein and beyond – and though her settlement with the Duke would prevent her speaking out in detail about Prince Andrew, multiple articles suggest he is ready to launch a lawsuit should she mention him. Andrew and his lawyers are ready to go on the attack, a source familiar with the case told the Mail last weekend. Then her claims will be put under scrutiny for the first time in a court of law. Finally! 
I don't know about you, but I always pay a reported £12 million to settle a case out of court when all I really want is for its claims to be heard in a court. Then, two weeks ago, allies of the Duke let it be known that details are about to be made public which will change people's perceptions of him. Intriguing. Are those details, could they possibly be, a photograph subsequently published on the front page of the Daily Telegraph? Unclear. But oh dear me, where to start on this picture? Released by Ian Maxwell, the brother of Epstein's convicted accomplice, Ghislaine. You will almost certainly have seen this truly cursed image by now. If you somehow swerved it, however, the details are as follows. Two mercifully clothed adults are sitting in the bath of Ghislaine's former Belgravia Muse house, which, you will recall, is where Geoffrey alleges she was first coerced into sexual activity with Prince Andrew. Around the faces of the two people in the photo, and I can barely believe I'm typing this, but here we are, there are elasticated laminated A4 sheets of paper worn as masks. Think of it as eyes wide shit. One mask bears the face of 17-year-old Virginia Giffray, from the notorious original photo of her with the Duke's hand around her waist, taken in the house in question on the night in question. Odd choice, but not the oddest, let's face it. The other figure is wearing a contemporary photo of Prince Andrew, age 62, which only serves to emphasise the bizarre grossness of what the reader is being asked to behold and consider. Unbelievably, actual lawyers had something to do with this nutso line of defence, which the Telegraph chose to headline, The Photo That Clears Duke Over Bath Sex. We might begin by querying whether bath sex is really the correct term for alleged rape of a trafficked teenager. But wait, because there's more. The image is accompanied by quotes from Ian. I always feel I missed the point in time that the utterances of Ian Maxwell began being treated with something other than quizzical contempt. When precisely did this switcheroo happen? Anyway, here is Maxwell on the photo, which he seems to have personally staged. I am releasing my photographs now because the truth needs to come out, explains Ian, apparently dialing in from the Arkham Asylum of British Public Life. They show conclusively that the bath is too small for any kind of sex frolicking. Two points. One, they don't show anything of the sort. And two, what? What? The family have even supplied the bath's dimensions, gibbers the telegraph, revealing that the base of the bathtub measures 1,359mm by 380mm. I'm not sure any newspaper in the land can credibly take the high ground on the lunacies of other publications, there but for the grace and all of that, but I don't imagine I was the only reader who saw this picture online and had to go to the source to check whether that really and truly was the actual front page. Yet it honestly was. Less of a marmalade dropper, more of a stomach vacator. If that photo wasn't the game-changing gambit at which Andrew's allies were hinting, 
Perhaps it was the interview from two weeks ago with Ghislaine herself. In this, Maxwell clutched one of the visiting room telephones at the Florida prison in which she is currently serving a 20-year sentence for her crimes and explained, through the glass, that the original photo of the Duke with his arm around Geoffrey, in which she herself is pictured smirking stage left, was a fake. If that was the de-smoked gun, then unfortunately, all it took was for the news photographer who had originally snapped the image from a hard copy Geoffrey handed him to produce his image of the back of that photo. This displays the standard developer's date stamp. It turns out to have been an ordinary printed snap, processed at a one-hour lab at Walgreens on the 13th of March 2001, three days after the date on which Geoffrey alleged she was forced into sexual activity with Andrew. The news photographer had gone back through his archives after being incensed by Ghislaine's interview two weeks ago. As he put it, I thought, here we go again. And here we do seem to keep going again. Quite how long the Duke will fail to realise his comeback is doomed is not clear. News that he would no longer have offices at Buckingham Palace, which is undergoing a £369 million refurbishment, was tempered by hints that he would still likely be granted rooms at nearby St James's Palace. But for what? Given he appears to have nothing to do other than mount a wildly ill-advised rearguard action against deeply unsavoury claims he decided to settle. Andrew no longer enjoys the range of confected positions that enabled him to be helicoptered between the world's finest golf courses. Does one really need a suit of damask-walled and lavishly gilded rooms with liveried attendees for his current activities? I can't help feeling a lock-up with a single swinging light bulb somewhere off the M25 might be more appropriate in the circumstances. That is the only staged photo any of us wishes to see. Failing that, a silent retirement for this lifelong self-saboteur would be in all interests, including his own. That was... Is there a comeback more unwelcome and doomed than Prince Andrew's? By Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Mantegi. Next. The Banshees of Inishirin may be set in the island of a century ago, but as Tim Dowling discovers, it offers a very modern lesson on quite how fragile male bonds can be. Read by William Vanderpoy. The premise of the film The Banshees of Inishirin, now attracting awards like a magnet, is encapsulated in an early exchange between the two main characters. Colum abruptly ends his long-standing friendship with Porrick, who understandably seeks an explanation. I just don't like you no more, says Colum. You do like me, says Porrick. I don't, says Colum. Although many of the codes of straight male friendship are unspoken, there are two obvious breaches of protocol here. First, one never ends things overtly. The demands of male friendship are traditionally so low that it would be more work to break off an acquaintance than to maintain it. It would certainly involve more talking. Second, among men, 
not liking someone is no particular barrier to lifelong friendship. It's hard to even think of such a relationship in those terms. Do I actually like this guy? Does he like me? How would I even know? We spend all the time we're together insulting each other. Why would it matter? What follows in the film is a grisly dissolution of a friendship. In a bid to escape Porek, Colum threatens to chop off his own fingers that we, the audience, have never known in its prime. But because it's a friendship between two men, we can guess what it was like. Companionable, fundamentally unserious, and wholly reliant on proximity or shared interests. In this case, going to the pub at 2pm every day. And all of it shrouded in a fog of comforting irrelevance. This apparently is what Colum can no longer abide about Porrick. It just don't have a place in my life for dullness anymore, he says. Men like to think that because our friendships are slow-growing, studded with barbs and require little tending, they are durable, like a drought-resistant hedge. But in reality, they're terribly fragile. Untended, they often simply shrivel up. They may seem flexible, but they're not constructed to withstand much in the way of change. When the writer and performer, Max Dickens, got engaged to his girlfriend, it triggered a crisis. He couldn't think of a close enough male friend to serve as his best man. Some of the most obvious candidates, it transpired, were people he hadn't spoken to in ages. His male friendships had, one by one, slipped away. He embarked on an investigation that became a funny and engaging book. Billy Nomates. How I Realised Men Have a Friendship Problem. Dickens instantly recognised something familiar in the Banshees of Inishirin, even though it sat on an island off the coast of Ireland a century ago. I thought it was one of the best portrayals of male friendship and also of male mental health I've seen on the screen, he says. It's pretty rare that a friendship, especially a male friendship, is the absolute centre of a narrative. It's not, as you may have gathered, a terribly flattering portrayal of male friendship. Neither is the one in Dickens' book, at first. The friends he re-established contact with always seemed to insist on social settings that gave the meeting an ulterior purpose, a sports bar or some kind of activity, rendering direct communication unnecessary. In terms of conversation, there was a predominant mode what Dickens calls the jazz of casual brutality that men reserve for people they like. You may recognise this picture of male friendship. Emotionally illiterate, devoid of ritual, wavering between light-hearted abuse and total silence. More than anything else, our friendships seem unthought through. Nobody quite seems to know what they want from them or what they need. But if you're a man, it's hard not to also feel a certain affection for this arrangement, or to think that maybe it is, in some sense, exactly what's required. We can overthink friendship a little bit, says Dickens, and kind of get obsessed about this idea that you have a best friend that is forever and will always be present and the perfect cipher for you. Male friendships are more like a kind of travel, he says, with the two of you side by side, 
eyes fixed on some shared destination. When men lose that spot on the horizon, often that friendship will become less close, he says, because that is the juice in it. That is what's pushing it forwards and keeping it together. Male friendship is also like a club. Members come and go, leave and rejoin. The supposed insufficiency of male friendship has spawned a lot of movements and groups over the years, some pitching formal male bonding rituals, others trying to reconfer a traditional sense of masculinity that the modern world has somehow robbed from us. A lot of the mythopoetic male movements typified by Robert Bly's book, Iron John, have aged poorly. But there are still plenty of gurus out there. Jordan Peterson say, purporting to tell hapless men hard truths when they're really just telling them what they want to hear. That men are the true victims of victim culture. What Dickens learned, and his book amply demonstrates, is that male friendships, like all friendships, require regular maintenance to keep them going. As a man, you may well find your closest male friends are simply the ones prepared to do all the social heavy lifting. As for the friendships themselves, well, you won't know what you're missing till they're gone. For all their emotional opacity and genial cruelty, male friendships are still vital. As Dickens writes, paraphrasing the American sports writer Ethan Strauss, yes, masculinity is a little bit toxic. That's what I like about it. But be careful. It's all fun until somebody loses a finger or several. That was Men, Guard Your Friendships Heed the Warning of the Banshees of Inner Sheeran by Tim Dowling Read by William Vanderpoy We'll be back after this short break. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, it's the age of decanting. Never before have household perfectionists removed so many things from packages, only to put them in other packages. Extreme tidiness is a modern obsession. But is it healthy? asks Amelia Tate. Read by Serena Mantegi. Strangers joke that Jacqueline Rendell should stick a label onto Adam Rendell's head. Husband, it would read. 
in the curved typeface Rendell designed based on her own handwriting, the pretty perfect font. If Adam had a label on his head, some of the 400,000 people who follow Jacqueline on TikTok say, then he would match everything else in the couple's home in Rochford, Essex. It starts at the front door, where the words, Thank you, Posty, are stuck on the silver letterbox, followed by a cartoon heart. There's nothing too unusual about this, nor the drawers in the corridor that hold separated bits and bobs labelled cables, batteries and tools. It is Rendell's six-doored pantry that has the power to inspire a thousand envious and incredulous comments online. Starting at the top left, there are nine transparent containers full of white, brown, pink and yellow powders, each marked by its identity. Sugar, hot chocolate, banana milkshake. Below that are miniature acrylic drawers of stock cubes and tiered rows of spices. The word cereal adorns six canisters in the next cupboard. Tagliatelle, spaghetti... Conchilier and penne are also spelled out on clear containers. Use-by dates are written in chalk pen on the back. Behind the next set of doors are dishwasher salt, stain remover and softener decanted into corked glass bottles. In the fridge, an open-topped container of apples reads, Apples. The words, ties and cufflinks adorn a drawer in Adam's office, The couple's young daughter, Sienna, knows where to put her things thanks to baskets marked dress-up, sports and dolls. Everything has its labelled place. One thing that is hard to label is the period of history in which we are living. Will our descendants call us Caroleans? Is this the plastic age? I think you could compellingly argue that we are actually living in the decanting era. Never before have things been removed from packages and put into other packages at such a pace. More than 6.7 million people have watched a YouTube video in which Khloe Kardashian stacks Oreos around the edges of a glass jar so that they look aesthetically pleasing. Meanwhile, Professional declutterer Marie Kondo sells packs of 90 labels, including ones for breadcrumbs, chia seeds and, alarmingly, food colouring, the least decantable substance sold in supermarkets. In their best-selling 2019 book, The Home Edit, A Guide to Organising and Realising Your House Goals, professional organisers Claire Scherer and Joanna Teplin jokingly label their own inexplicably joint, gravestone, speculating that it will read Pantry perfectionists who were canister enthusiasts, turntable advocates and women entirely committed to labelling all things. Although excessive organisation began as a hobby of the ultra-wealthy, Shara and Teplin once sorted Reese Witherspoon's closet and charged more than £200 an hour for their services, storage-stuffed homes are increasingly commonplace A spokesperson for bargain homeware chain B&M says home organisation sales have seen substantial growth for the last few years and show no signs of stopping. Clear storage containers are particularly popular. 
as well as nestable boxes that allow customers to maximise space. It's easy to dismiss this as a fad, but look closer at ten glass jars lined neatly on a shelf and you'll see a reflection of yourself. The rise of the highly organised home reveals something deeper about the way many live today. And it can't be separated from modern capitalism, the pressures of domestic labour, social media and ever-increasing anxiety rates. All I felt I was doing was working, then coming home, cleaning up, making dinner and going to sleep. And that was literally my life, says 32-year-old Rendell, who worked as a PE teacher until April 2022. To gain control, she started waking up at 4.40am in 2021. She exercises, tidies, does laundry and showers before her daughter and husband wake up. Everything I do, everything, is centred around time and saving it and maximising it, Rendell says, sitting in her kitchen in an oversized white jumper, black leggings and pink fluffy slippers. Rendell's food is organised so she can bulk buy and cook once a month. Meals are kept in fridge-freezer drawers and marked with the days of the week. It's faster to write shopping lists now she can see with a quick glance what she's running low on and, Rendell says, she never has to clean spilled flour thanks to her containers. Snacks are categorised to save time packing Sienna's lunchbox while her clothing is laid out in seven separate drawers every Sunday making it easier to dress her each morning. Of course, Rendell admits, decanting and organising does take a bit of time initially, and some critics are adamant that she should get a job and stop wasting time. People don't see the long-term benefit, she says. Yes, it might take her an hour to unpack her monthly shop and six hours to bulk cook on a Saturday, But then in the evening, other people have to think, go to the shops, cook, tidy away, times that by seven. The turning point for Rendell was when her father passed away in her arms after having gallbladder cancer. She was just 19. I realised that, actually, I don't want to waste time. I want to maximise it. I don't want Sienna to just work and be bathed. I want time with her. To stay organised... Rendell designed her own planner. It's pink, gold and thicker than most Bibles. She sells it for £48.99 on her website, Pretty Perfect Products, where she also sells labels. Booming sales in the pandemic enabled Rendell to quit her teaching job. Her products have caught the attention of TV personalities Danny Dyer and Alison Hammond. Rendell even visited the latter's home to help organise her cupboards. Still, not everyone loves Rendell's lifestyle. I don't understand why it gets people so mad. Like, so mad, she says. Rendell sees it as her job to educate hateful commenters about the benefits of home organisation. But she knows they're right about one thing. The squash. In a cupboard that holds cups and mugs, Rendell has three corked glass bottles filled with red and yellow liquids. On the side of each is a swirly white word, squash. This one is my only thing that is for aesthetic, Rendell says, conceding that moving juice from a plastic to a glass bottle is not time-saving. It gets people really mad. I do get that.
It is hard to imagine that anyone would ever decant their squash in a world without social media. While people's pantries used to be private spaces, they're now shared across the internet. Singer Stacey Solomon went viral in 2020 for sharing a video of crisps hanging on a curtain pole inside her cupboard. She now has her own decluttering show on the BBC. As well as busy parents, children and teens enjoy home organisation content that provokes a satisfying autonomous sensory meridian response, better known as ASMR, when Cocoa Pops cascade into a plastic tub or lids are clicked onto containers. The sound gives some people pleasant tingles. Satisfying is a word that recurs under Rendell's videos. Design researcher Lisa O'Neill says that this is all part of something called meta-consumption. Meta-consumers, O'Neill explains, consume content about consumption. There are almost 4 million posts tagged hashtag organisation on Instagram, while Rendell makes 10 TikToks a week. Home edit authors Shara and Teplin got a Netflix series in 2020, while Kondo showcases her Con Marie tidying method in two shows of her own. Idealistic real estate shows make people feel like they need to aspire to these perfect homes, O'Neill says. There is another aspect of metaconsumption which O'Neill describes as consuming objects that act in service of other objects or buying things for your things. In Kondo's best-selling 2010 decluttering book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, she told readers to store possessions in shoeboxes. Today, she peddles 30-pound bamboo storage bins on her site, while also admitting last week that tidying is less of a priority personally now she has three children. The solution to overconsumption has become yet another form of consumption. If you have too many clothes and devices, simply buy somewhere to store them. Decluttering, perversely, now involves acquiring more stuff. An abundance of bins, boxes, labels. Rachel Budditt, a 42-year-old Leicestershire-based professional organiser known as the Declutter Darling, believes demand for her services has increased because of Amazon. There's a lot more accessibility for buying things, she says. I've been in people's kitchens with Amazon boxes all over the place. Quick shopping has made people fill their homes. O'Neill, whose master's thesis was titled Declutter or Die, How the Home Organisation Industry Designs the Metaconsumer, has researched which brands benefit. In the US... Storage chain The Container Store saw sales increase 27% between 2019 and 2022. John Lewis now has the Home Edit range. A single cereal canister will set you back £20. When Budget started organising in 2015, she could find storage boxes only in her local hardware store, whereas nowadays every store has something. So, where did it all start? Netherlands brand Curva launched its first big plastic box in the 80s. Its cream latticed storage boxes are now available in most UK homeware stores. Japanese brand Muji arrived here in 1991, 
bringing a range of acrylic storage units that inspired coverage in Time Out and teen magazine J17. In 2016, IKEA's chief sustainability officer said the world had reached peak stuff. Yet, in 2022, the company released Snerad, a £29 clear plastic refrigerator turntable that swivels around to allow easier access to those back-of-the-fridge condiments. It exploded across the internet, with one TikTok alone earning 2.8 million views. You've got to be honest with people. It does cost money, Rendell says. She tells viewers to buy organisation products gradually, from Home Bargains and B&M. Still, the highly organised believe they're not just investing in their homes, they're investing in their mental health. For many, organisation is a way to find control in an increasingly out-of-control world. Ellie Killer started organising after experiencing postnatal depression following the birth of her first child. I never had any mental health problems before children, says the 32-year-old mother of two from Somerset, who posts organisation content on her YouTube channel, Ellie Polly. I can be up and down with my mood, but if I've done a full restock and clean, I feel so calm and in control. It is a control thing. Like many organising influencers, Killer stocks snacks like a shop, lining them up in neat rows in her pantry. Organising makes her feel euphoric. She compares it to the endorphins experienced by gym-goers. Before seeking therapy and medication, she suffered from anxious thoughts about her children. Morbid thoughts about them dying and constantly worrying about them. She considers staying on top of her home another type of treatment. Mental health-wise, it just saves me. It is my therapy, I think. Kate Bartlett concurs. The 27-year-old marketing specialist from Bath says organisation has been a coping mechanism and creative release since her student years. But more recently, it has helped her prepare for motherhood. When I found out I was pregnant, I really struggled at the beginning with having that lack of control, Bartlett says. Organising her baby's clothes by colour helped, as did stocking a hospital bag with labelled pouches. I find that looking at the things I can control really helps me mentally. Hussin Sun Meg Lee is a marketing professor at ESCP Business School in London, who has researched the relationship between Marie Kondo-style decluttering and happiness. Lee says, Many people see decluttering their spaces as akin to decluttering their minds. There's a concept called symbolic pollution, she says. In the context of household organisation, this term refers to items that are out of place and violate the rules we set for our surroundings. For some, the process of removing this pollution and putting things in order causes them to feel they are in control. Yet organisation is not always beneficial for mental health. While it's a myth that obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, is only about cleaning, some OCD sufferers do have compulsions around cleanliness and order. Psychologist Tara Quinchirillo, who runs her own practice in Sussex, advises looking out for intrusive thoughts, such as excessive worry about germs. Warning signs include 
missing out on valued activities because you prioritise organising routines, limiting activities in your house because you're afraid it will get messy, and a preoccupation with rituals. For example, vacuuming in a set pattern from the same corner of the room. There is also the risk that watching organisation content could damage viewers' mental health. Being bombarded with polished perfection could make some feel inferior, anxious or out of control. In 2009, psychologists at the University of California asked working parents to give guided tours of their homes and monitored the stressful words they used before measuring the levels of the stress hormone cortisol in their saliva. Wives who described their homes as more stressful had flatter slopes of cortisol throughout the day, a phenomenon linked to chronic stress, psychological distress and higher mortality. Husbands with stressful homes were mostly fine. The study's authors noted that women may feel greater responsibility and guilt about clutter. Idealistic organisation content could entrench such feelings. By now, you may have noticed a word conspicuously absent from this article. He. In 2019, researchers from UCL found that women still do more housework than their male partners, even when the woman earns more money. Between 2014 and 2019, the number of women earning the majority of their household's income increased by 30%, but 45% of female breadwinners still did most of the household chores, as opposed to 12% of male breadwinners. Juggling teaching, mothering, cooking, cleaning and managing her planner business ramped up Jacqueline Rendell's organisation habits, and her customers are mainly women, mainly mothers. When her husband did a food shop, TikTok commenters praised him. Everyone said he was amazing. He's doing the shop I do every week. I don't get a well done, Rendell says. Might she consider resetting the balance and challenging society's expectations by creating organisation planners for men? No, Rendell says, because I am my target audience. I just feel like I need to help women, because we have more pressure. It's not up to organisation influencers to fix gender inequality. But could their content entrench it? After all, when excessive organisation stops feeling remarkable, when it stops being something worthy of writing an article about, won't it just be another expectation placed on women? Rendell says she shows the dodgy side, and isn't afraid to be honest about mess. In 2023, she also wants to start visiting mothers in need and organising their homes for free. For now, home organisation booms unabated. APDO, the Association of Professional Declutterers and Organisers, has more than 400 experts across the UK. Professional organiser Caroline Rogers says that when she first joined nine years ago, there were only a hundred members. Back then, clients used to be ashamed about employing her. If she met someone in a client's life, I'd have to say, oh, I'm her friend. Now people say, this is Caroline, she's my professional organiser. When I speak to Rendell, she's in the process of reorganising her office. 
pink post-its adorn twelve white drawers, marking the future homes of her possessions, which lay jumbled in baskets and boxes around the room. This makes me feel a little bit on edge, Rendell says, looking around. But I know that, once it's done, I'll sleep easy. That was It's a Control Thing. Why are we so fascinated by super-organised homes? By Amelia Tate. Read by Serena Mantegi. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Serena Mantegi and William Vanderpoy and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.